Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the devastating earthquakes in southern Turkey and northern Syria, areas already under stress from refugees fleeing the ongoing war in Syria, which has destroyed much of Aleppo, which was hit hard by the 7.8 earthquake. Joining us is Sibel Octay, a professor and the director of the School of Politics and International Affairs at the University of Illinois, and a non-resident senior fellow of public opinion and foreign policy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, whose research focuses on Europe, the U.S., and the Middle East, specifically Turkey and Israel. She's the author of Governing Abroad, Coalition Politics and Foreign Policy in Europe, and is a recipient of the Jefferson Science Fellowship of the United States Department of State. Then we'll look into the arrests of two neo-Nazis, one of whom is the founder of Adam Waffen, which models itself on the Nazi SS. They were planning to blow up five electrical substations around Baltimore to shut off power to the city and create chaos to the point they hoped a race war would begin. Joining us to discuss the threat to critical infrastructure from domestic terrorism and the motives of these racist extremists engaged in accelerationism is Thomas Makaitis, a professor of history at DePaul University who has taught counterterrorism courses for the past 13 years at venues around the world as part of the United States Department of Defense Counterterrorism Fellowship Program. He's the author of six books including New Terrorism, Myths and Reality, Violent Extremists, Understanding the Domestic and International Terrorist Threat, and Iraq and the Challenge of Counterinsurgency. Then finally, we'll assess the global struggle between democracies under threat and encroaching autocracies and kleptocracies and speak with James Cronin, a research professor of history at Boston College and a local affiliate of the Minda de Gunsberg Center for European Studies at Harvard University. He's the author of numerous books and articles, including Global Rules, America and Britain in a Disordered World, and we will discuss his latest book just out, Fragile Victory, The Making and Unmaking of Liberal Order. And joining us now is Sibel Octe, who is a professor and the director of the School of Politics and International Affairs at the University of Illinois and a non-resident senior fellow in public opinion and foreign policy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, whose research focuses on Europe, the U.S. and the Middle East, specifically Turkey and Israel. She's the author of Governing Abroad, Coalition Politics and Foreign Policy in Europe, and is the recipient of the Jefferson Science Fellowship of the United States Department of State. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sibel Octay. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And obviously, a terrible earthquake and tragic loss of life has happened in southern Turkey and northern Syria. At this point, there are over 3,000 people who have died and over 10,000 injured. And I'm sure the casualties will be higher. The initial 7.8 earthquake, which happened at four in the morning, was followed by another earthquake of 7.5 magnitude uh, late in the day. So it is a tragedy that's hampered by cold weather, and and it's happening in a, in a part of the world where you have an enormous number of refugees. And in Syria, in Aleppo, which was badly hit by the earthquake, it's already been destroyed largely by the war, which continues in uh, that neighborhood. So 
I take it, Sibel, you're in touch with people in Turkey. Uh, right. Uh, that's that's uh, that's a good and and also tragic recap of what's happened. Um, Turkey has not had a an earthquake uh, with this big of a magnitude in in about a hundred years. The last uh, major earthquake was in 1999, which was recorded at 7.4, with an epicenter of um, of Gölcük, uh, that's uh, about an hour's, two hours drive away from Istanbul. So it was felt uh, severely in Istanbul. I was in Istanbul when the earthquake happened in August of 1999. And then the one before that, which was a 7.8 magnitude that happened in 1939. So um, it really is uh, the biggest uh, sort of natural catastrophe that, that the country has seen in, in about a, a hundred years. I have been in in contact with uh, some of the people I know, some of my colleagues who um, live near the epicenter. They they report uh, good health, fortunately. Um, but then I've heard some other um, you know sadder stories about you know um, friends of friends uh, losing their lives and and getting stuck under the rubble. Obviously, it's the 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 real sort of depth of winter right now, especially in towns such as Malatya, which is uh, one of the nearby uh, cities uh, near near Gaziantep. Um, that's the epicenter of the 7.8 earthquake. And so the winter weather is not making anything easier. Obviously, um, people are out in the cold. It's cold, it's wet, it's snowy, and uh, and they need all the help uh, they could get uh, from from Turkish authorities, from non-governmental organizations and the international community. So, Sibel, let's talk about aid from abroad. Turkey's President Erdogan has managed to irritate a lot of global leaders, uh, particularly in Europe. He's actually profiting from this tragic war in Ukraine. He's laundering Russian money, uh, discount oil, his son-in-law is selling selling drones to the Ukrainians. He's not real popular, and he's also now trying to stop Sweden from entering NATO based upon his anger at, a, at somebody in Denmark burning a Koran, uh, which doesn't make a lot of sense. So do you think that the world, and particularly the generous Europeans like the Swedes, are they likely to pony up and just ignore the fact that Erdogan is such a troublesome character. So back in 1999, I want to take you back to that major um, earthquake. Uh, Turkey also had a lot of rifts at the time with with uh, with Greece, uh, with some of the other European countries. And then um, what came afterwards from that tragedy was what then was known as earthquake diplomacy where Turkey and Greece, um, particularly Greece, sort of extending a helping hand. And then a few months later, if, uh, if I'm not um, mistaken, uh, Greece also had a similar earthquake and Turkish authorities started sending um, aid and other types of relief efforts. And the, 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 the bridges, which were already you know, built on shaky ground, were sort of being um, rebuilt. And um, right now, what we're seeing on the European front is even though Erdogan is a polarizing figure and he has received some, um, I, I mean, he pretty rightfully uh, received some criticism for uh, continuing to oppose um, Swedish membership in NATO. 
these European um, allies and partners of Turkey are uh, are extending this offer um, in response to the immediate um, announcement from the Turkish government saying they are um, open and they are requesting international aid. That's the magnitude of the calamity. Um, Turkey and, and Turkish government and Erdogan in particular is well known for being a sort of a grandiose, self-confident figure, and his regime is definitely sort of they they enjoy boasting and um, and uh, sort of over uh, I guess inflating uh, uh, their capabilities and and what they're able to accomplish. However, the the magnitude of this calamity is so huge that essentially within hours, within maybe minutes, the the government's official uh, announcement was to request international aid. And a lot of those same European partners and allies of Turkey, including the United States, um, they they obviously offered to help, and and, uh, that's the humane thing to do. And some relief efforts are already on their way. So France is sending uh, a couple hundred people, uh, sort of rescue missions, similar with Germany and some of the other European European countries. Um, the Swedish prime minister tweeted from, from their official account saying they are ready to extend a hand if and when needed. And so this is a humanitarian catastrophe. And and I do hope that um, leaders on all sides of these current, um, you know, tensions and conflicts sort of put a pause on on these uh, tensions and really center the people and prioritize the human lives that are at stake here. So Erdogan has called for seven seven days of mourning, and you've just explained that his nationalistic kind of boasting has sort of been tamped down in this occasion where he's actually asking for help. It's also an election season, is it not, in Turkey? And right. he's jailed his opposition people. He controls the media. How do you think this could play out? I know, I know it's a humanitarian disaster, but obviously you can't help feeling that there's going to be political consequences. Definitely. So the elections are scheduled for May 14th, uh, so about um, two, three months from now. And it's already been a tense uh, process on both sides. So this is Erdogan's, um, this will be the third time that he um, runs for the presidency, even though this is uh, constitutionally a sort of a gray area. Um, the constitution that he himself championed a couple of years ago actually prevents the 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 president from running for a third time. Um, but I believe he and his team are looking for uh, some uh, some loophole to make sure that um, th- this would be a legitimate candidacy. Um, and obviously he is caught between a very difficult economic situation domestically. People's purchasing power is dwindling. Inflation is rocket high. Unemployment is increasing. Um, and, and, and between that and and right now this sort of humanitarian disaster, the opposition isn't having uh, a, a, its best moment either. There's already some intra-opposition tension uh, that prevents them from uh, officially nominating uh, a, their joint candidate, and the inability with which they are 
dealing with this nomination process really shows, really gives a lot of um, concern, creates a lot of concern among the uh, opposition voters. Uh, and so, so this is already a very uh, interesting election season. And right now with, with the earthquakes and with, with the human consequences and the economic consequences and the sort of the political implications of what it means for the government who's been having a very difficult time responding to this because of the infrastructure that they had uh, invested to build. Um, basically, everything came apart. You know, airports have collapsed, roads have split apart and so on and so forth. And so what this will do for Erdogan is, I want to say, still quite up in the air for two. Um, and and I, can, I can see this from like two different perspectives. Number one, again, going back to 1999, uh, when a coalition government that was led by a social democratic political party, the DSP, was, um, was in power, um, the 1999 earthquake and its aftermath was one of the last sort of straws that broke its back, essentially, um, that led to the uh, emergence of um, the AKP as a new political party in 2002 and subsequently winning the elections with a landslide that year. On the other hand, um, in the last couple of years, we've seen similar types of uh, disasters, like mining disasters in um Back in 2016, there was a mining disaster in the town of Soma, and um, and it received a lot of media attention, and it was the consequence of a lot of you know deregulation that was championed by the government. And yet, um, a, a couple of months later, when when the elections uh, took place, AKP won that particular town. So, um, and and a lot of people, a lot of analysts uh, talked about how. Um, the Soma mining disaster was pretty much um, sort of nullified at the at the ballot box. People did not vote based on what happened. So it could work either way for Erdogan. I think it's a very volatile situation, especially also considering the fact that, like you said, the media landscape is very much tilted towards Erdogan. He the 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 judicial system is very much tilted towards Erdogan. Um, he is um, looking to uh, imprison and, and completely take Ekrem Imamoglu, his, his biggest political rival right now, the current mayor of Istanbul, out of the political game. But obviously the, the, the earthquake is a major complicating factor in whatever is going to happen in the next couple of weeks before the elections. But again, it's at, at this point, I would say it's anybody's guess. Well, he's certainly showing dictatorial powers, and there's also an enormous amount of corruption, a lot of family insider dealings. I mean, uh, you mentioned that infrastructure that he's built. I mean, you had the demonstrations in Gezi Park some time back. So a lot of this sort of, I mean, the palace he built for himself is absolutely obscene, right? So the fact that you've you have a lot of earthquakes in, in Turkey, does that mean that over the years, buildings get weakened by repeated earthquakes and aftershocks? That's a very good question, and I'm not an expert on that. Um, I'm not a citizen engineer. However, I, I can give you some of these 
uh, numbers and, and some of these facts about what happened after the 1999 earthquake in uh, near Istanbul, that 7.4 magnitude earthquake that claimed officially 18,000 lives, but um, the unofficial numbers are almost certainly um, double that. So after that earthquake, the government, or I should say the state, uh, imposed a mandatory earthquake tax um, that has been collected from um, every Turkish citizen, every Turkish taxpayer for the last um, 20, 22, 23 years. Um, Because the Turkish mechanisms for accountability are very weak and very opaque. Nobody exactly knows what happened to to that tax money that has been collected for the last 23 years. Um, There were new sort of city plans or, or discussions of city plans, let's say for Istanbul, that said that certain Uh, open spaces would be reserved and would not be given uh, licensure for, uh, you know, for building, um, you know, new construction. And those would be gathering sites for folks uh, in the in the um, uh, in the very much expected event of a a new earthquake uh, and even a bigger earthquake than the 7.4 that took place in 1999. All of those um, open spaces were then uh, licensed to uh, to uh, contractors, to construction companies, these big conglomerates um, who are also allies and, and supporters of Erdogan, and they build hotels, big um, shopping malls, and, and, and so on and so forth. And so the the government did not learn its lesson. The officials did not learn their lessons from the 1999 earthquake. And... Uh, and so even though there were regulations, much stricter regulations that were put in place after 99, um, the, uh, the understanding and the, you know, my sense of, you know, what I'm reading on Twitter and the, and the photos that are coming in shows us that those regulations have not been met, um, especially in some of these, uh, some of these Southeastern cities. And so, I mean, I've I've read tweets about some some folks telling each other, you know, some some real estate agents, if you're looking for buildings that were built um, after you know 2000s, then you know you should really uh, check there, you know, um, whether they were particularly regulated around, um, you know, for these um, uh, they, whether they are meeting um, earthquake centers or not, and so there is a lot of debate about to what extent these new constructions and the last 10, 15 years of Turkey's economic boom um, construction uh, was a major uh, sector that sort of drove that that economic growth. What we don't know, well, I mean, it seems that quantity toppled quality there, uh, and now people are um, sort of paying the cost uh, with their lives. Well, Sabel Oktay, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it your input here, and it's a tragic situation. I hope people, in spite of their hatred of of Erdogan, which I share, that the rest of the world will show charitable giving here in this moment of humanitarian need. Thank you, Ian.
And again, I've been speaking with Sibel Octay, who's a professor and the director of the School of Politics and International Affairs at the University of Illinois and a non-resident senior fellow of public opinion and foreign policy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, whose research focuses on Europe, the U.S. and the Middle East, specifically Turkey and Israel. And she's the author of Governing Abroad, Coalition Politics and Foreign Policy in Europe and is a recipient of the Jefferson Science Fellowship of the United States Department of State. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the arrest of two neo-Nazis, one of whom was the founder of the Adam Waffen, who were planning to blow up five electrical substations around Baltimore to shut off power to the city and create chaos to the point they hoped a race war would begin. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Thomas McIdas, who's a professor of history at DePaul University, who has taught counterterrorism courses for the past 13 years at venues around the world as part of the U.S. Department of Defense Counterterrorism Fellowship Program. He's the author of six books, including New Terrorism, Myths and Reality, Violent Extremists, Understanding the Domestic and International Terrorist Threat, and Iraq and the Challenge of Counterinsurgency. Welcome to Background Briefing, Thomas Makaitis. Thank you for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us, Tom. And today it was announced that the FBI has arrested Brandon Russell, 27, and Sarah Clendaniel, 34. Brandon Russell is the founder of the Waffen SS, I mean, the Adam Waffen neo-Nazi group. And he has an extraordinary arrest record. So the idea that he was in jail for possession of explosives and got out uh, recently and then immediately hooked up with this woman in prison, apparently, and planned to blow up or shoot up all five uh, electrical substations around Baltimore to shut the city down and hopefully at the end of the day create such confusion and chaos that there'd be a race war. Mm -hmm. So this is the war at home, isn't it? How many more wake-up calls do we have to have about the threat of domestic terrorism in the United States? Well, I think, you know, the good news is he was apprehended. By the way, there have been 11 of these plots that have been foiled by the FBI since uh, just since 2020. And another three more that go back to since 2016 to the present. So we're onto this threat. And I suspect they caught them by having him under surveillance or monitoring their communication and so on. But this is a growing concern because we know there was a very successful attack on the power grid uh, in the Carolinas uh, in December. 
that knocked power out uh, for a significant period of time. So this has been a, a worry for, for a long while. Um, initially, those of us in the field noticed that it was ISIS, excuse me, Al-Qaeda, and then later ISIS that was wanting to do this. But the white supremacists to the neo-Nazis have taken a page from the book, and they've seen how effective the attack was uh, last in December. And it, uh, this was apparently an effort to copycat it. Um, and there, there, the Adam Waffen division. He's one of several of a handful of founders, or sometimes referred to as the Adam Waffen SS. Is a particularly violent group, um, but you know, there also there's also this, you know, neo-Nazi ideology circulating very widely on the internet. Well, the attacks on the power grid in North Carolina and Oregon, and also in some years back just outside of San Jose, all remain unsolved. Yep. It's extremely easy to do because all you have to do is, um, you know, fire enough shots apparently into a transformer to disable it. And given that you can do that from some distance and the extraordinary difficulty of hardening and protecting all those sites is, uh, you know, makes it a very attractive tactic, especially when the purpose of, of this group is, as you said at the beginning, is to create chaos. Um, they, and there, uh, they were, there was a book written uh, many, many years ago called The Turner Diaries, which is exactly that's kind of a scenario. You know, carry out catastrophic attacks, create the conditions for a race war that allows this group to mobilize you know, the Aryan peoples as they see them, white Americans, um, to, you know, and take over control of the country. Um, it, it's a pretty far-fetched ideology, but unfortunately there are too many people willing to act on it. Well, this group, they killed a gay Jewish college student in 2019. Another one of them killed his girlfriend's parents who opposed his Nazi uh, ideology. And they've been harassing journalists and African-American churches, Jewish organizations. Yep. Yep. I mean, the guy that lived with Russell in Tampa, Devin Arthurs, killed two of their roommates in 2017. Yep. And he was planning on, on attacking U.S. nuclear plants and power lines. Yeah. He, and and this is the very same apartment that they shared where he killed these uh, two people is where the explosives were found or the precursors yeah. were found, which Brandon Russell had stored. And that's why he was in jail. Yeah, it's a, it was a very bizarre case. I mean, had they not had there not been that murder, um, it's not clear they would have found uh, him. Now, nuclear plants are pretty well protected. We were on top of that um, pretty early after the 9-11 incident uh, attack. But, you know, as we know, I mean, you know, power stations, it's a highly, de you know, it's a highly decentralized extensive network. And one of the difficulties you run into is, um, especially when so much of our infrastructure is in private hands, is one of, one of the things that business hates is redundancy because it's expensive. So, you know, um, the kind of things that you want to do to make sure that taking out one or a handful of these facilities doesn't, uh, you know, black out an entire area, you know, is to have, you know, quite a bit of backup and that costs. And so does hardening sites. Um it can be done, but uh, we're we're behind on this because it's we've only you know this this has increased in in in, in severity and and intensity uh, in the last uh, couple of years. Well, you'd think that they could build cheap walls that screen uh, so you don't have the visibility to shoot, 
I mean, yeah. he, here in Los Angeles, you have these oil rigs in the middle of suburbs, and they put big walls around them so you don't right. see them. So there may be there maybe there are some less expensive methods, don't you think? Oh, there certainly are. But the, but the problem is is I mean, in any given area, how many of these things are there? I mean, for example, where I live, all the all the electric wires are underground, so we never get a power outage from the blowing over the electric lines. But occasionally, a transformer gets knocked out. And there are transformers absolutely everywhere, and the physical impossibility of protecting them, you know, is is makes it attractive. Now, fortunately, they want to have as wide an impact as possible, so they're trying to look at at facilities, you know, that are they, that are kind of major hubs. But even there, yes, you can you can harden anything. The question is, at what cost and who pays for it? Um, and you know the other the other strategy that appeared that clearly worked in this case is for the FBI to be very aggressively infiltrating these organizations, and I suspect that's what happened, and that's why they were able to apprehend these two. And the woman in this case, uh, who was he actually advised uh, this woman to carry the attacks out. She's apparently uh, terminally ill with uh, kidney cancer, so this was to be her last hurrah, her dramatic exit. Um, to make the last statement on behalf of the cause. Right. She's a big admirer of Hitler, the Unabomber, and uh, yep. Breivik, the Norwegian mass killer. And yep. she apparently had lost access to an assault rifle because of a criminal complaint. And it was, <laughs> I guess she brandished the weapon in, in an argument with her neighbor, and it was taken away from her. Yeah, and then she got in touch with an informant to get a new uh, assault rifle, and yeah. I guess that's the the informant that uncovered this plot. I mean, they're not the brightest bulbs, but they're incredibly dangerous, right? Well, it, I wouldn't even go so far to say they're not the brightest bulbs. I mean, she made a very stupid mistake. There's no question about that. And by the way, that's a good argument for red flag laws because they were able in this case, to have that effect. But the reality is what makes them so dangerous, so frightening, is many of them don't really care if they get caught or killed in the, in the action. But with something like this, it's extremely easy to do it and not get caught. I mean, you know, and when you've got it, we live in a society which, you know, you talk about putting up barriers, it's still legal in many places to get armor-piercing bullets, Teflon-coated bullets. Um, and, you know, how quickly can you, can you, in fact, put these things up? And, you know, nothing will be completely foolproof, but I think it's clearly going to be the direction we're going to have to go. Um, but the best thing, of course, is to interdict the organizations before they strike. The other thing, too, is there's, the, you know, there's a new, there's another neo-Nazi movement that's become um, become quite uh, significant and grew, grew out of, uh, um, you know, um, a movement in Estonia that's become international. And these groups find each other. These individuals find each other. They're 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 very very loosely organized. In some cases, it's a bunch of individuals motivated by a common ideology and keeping track of lone wolves is an absolute nightmare groups are a lot easier to track because there are more of them there's chatter they leave finger and footprints figuratively speaking and uh, monitoring the activities is easier it's the it's the lone wolf hanging out there in space the young man who shot up the supermarket and, and killed african-americans in buffalo last year is a case in point. No, no, an affiliation with any group or Dylan Roof, neo-Nazi leanings, no membership, and he's the young man who murdered uh, people in uh, the church in Charleston, South Carolina. Well, you're right about them not caring because uh, both of these characters were on probation, so that didn't work. 
but he got sentenced in 2018 to five years in federal prison for explosives in the apartment he shared with the guy that murdered two people in that apartment. The apartment apparently is full of of memorabilia, portraits of Timothy McVeigh, Timothy McVeigh's former military uniform. (laughs) Pretty strange bunch of people. But So what's the story there? Why did he only get five years? Well, because probably what he did, you know, I mean, this is the difficulty is, in fact, um, he he had not progressed to the point where they, they had any, apparently any clear evidence of him having picked a target or issued a threat or whatever, maybe they have, but he hadn't carried it out. And and I'm not familiar with the details of the law, um, but he was, uh, you know, he, he, they, they probably gave him the maximum sentence, but you know, not these things are not perfect. Clearly uh, they were monitoring him. I suspect monitoring him is how they caught her. So I have a hard time believing they would have let him out on parole or released him from prison without also keeping tabs on him. Because right. you know, we know that they, these individuals typically don't um, don't reform. They uh, you know, and the group I was referring to out of Estonia is called the uh, the Feuerkrieg Division, um, German for Fire War Division, um, and it's it's got it's got followers all over. And you're absolutely right. They 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 lionize people like Brett and Tarrant, the shooter in New Zealand, Dil, uh, Dylan Roof, the South Carolina shooter, Anders Breivik. Timothy McVeigh is a huge hero in this movement because he had probably before 9-11 the most successful terrorist attack in the United States when blowing up the Morrow Federal Building in Oklahoma City. So let's talk about the motivation of these groups, these neo-Nazi groups. I believe the term that's used now is they're accelerationists. They want to accelerate a, right. a race war. Yeah, they have. this is another thing that makes them particularly dangerous because they... They don't. They don't really have a plan. They're, they're sowers of chaos, um, and their 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 feeling is is when things if, if government authority disintegrates and breaks down, that creates what for them is ideal conditions for the race war they want. It's very interesting that of course the the, the hyper focusing on the anti-Semitic dimension of these Aryan groups is extremely important and understandable given what happened in Germany in the second in uh, you know the Third Reich. But the reality is that's only part of a much broader racial ideology. And in the United States, you know, there is a much larger African American population and they're equally targeted. Um, and if that's part of their targeting as well. And, and ironically, if Germany had a significant uh, African or black population, they would have been targeted also. They just didn't. But if you look at Nazi ideology, and I teach a course on Germany under the Third Reich, you realize that these, these racial purity, this racial purity ideology, you know, demonizes anyone who doesn't fit a particularly narrow Aryan type. And they also, even within that type, they targeted, uh, you know, uh, LGBTQ people. They targeted physically disabled people, what they called people they called useless eaters or life unworthy of living. And, um, you know, they targeted what they called the chronically asocial, which included people who probably suffered from mental illness. So their target, their hit list is quite large. Um, but for them, you know, just creating lawless, the conditions of lawlessness produces opportunity. We saw that in Kenosha, Wisconsin, after the particular case where you had rioting and it attracted white supremacists who came in allegedly 
um, to help the police restore order. Um, and unfortunately, the police police welcomes apparently welcomes some of them. But they're also they see these things as opportunities to further this agenda. So you're talking about the incident where Rittenhouse killed yeah. the right, and he's been making money on the kind of lecture tour and uh, promoting himself. Uh, there's certainly no contrition there. No. So that I find extraordinary that he was given such kid glove treatment by the local judge and the right wing of followers have made him a hero. Uh, oh, just, yeah, sure. But the FBI special agent in charge, Thomas Sobosinski, of the charge of the field office in Baltimore, he said that their views of these two extremists are racially and ethically motivated. So I'm assuming they've the FBI from their wiretaps or whatever have heard them spout racist right. screeds. Oh, no question about it. You don't have to do that. You can go online. Southern Poverty Law Center and the Anti-Defamation League websites have extensive information on these individuals that anybody can access. Um, and they're bra- you know, they're brazen. And the FBI, it's very interesting, said they will, they have not and will never police ideology. And that's, you know, one of the prices you pay for living in a society that enshrines freedom of speech. Um, but they do want, they pay careful attention to potential action. You know, it's very difficult to monitor all these individuals when some of them aren't affiliated, um, but we, there are warning signs. There are, you know, their activity online will increase. Um, the virulence of their messaging will increase. The content will become, uh, you know, more ominous. But it takes an awful lot of, you know, of hours of human labor and a lot of people to keep track of all that. And it's an even tougher call to say at what point do you intervene and if at what point have they crossed a line and committed a crime. Mm-hmm. Well, clearly, if she was preparing to do this and he was advising her how to do it, that is, you know, seems to be conspiracy, allegedly, because they haven't been tried yet. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, there's just a lot of people out there and it doesn't take many. And you and it, it's more and more, it's the lone wolf that's the cause for concern. Because you, there's just, it's so very hard to know. And not even, we don't sometimes don't know why. The largest mass shooting in the United States was the Las Vegas shooter. And we still, to this day, don't know what his agenda was. Right. Well, just in closing, though, the House Republicans led by the uh, Freedom Caucus, part of their agenda is to cut funds for the FBI. Sure. So, I mean, that's just insane. Well, but it also is connected to the problem because as long as there is a, a significant section of one of the two major parties who gives these people ideological cover with the kind of, well, we don't agree with violence, pause, however... We understand the desire to, quote, unquote, take back your country. I mean, that's just like throwing oil on flames. Um, And sure, they, you know, under the guise of personal liberty, we don't want the FBI spying on people. And I tell most people who tell me that you're not important enough to worry about. You can relax. But we're taking away the ability of the organization to protect us from these kinds of attacks. Well, Thomas McCartis, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Happy to do it, Ian. Uh, I was glad to to talk about these subjects, even though they're they're rather disturbing. 
indeed. And again, I've been speaking with Thomas Makaitis, who's a professor of history at DePaul University, who has taught counterterrorism courses for the past 13 years at venues around the world as part of the United States Department of Defense Counterterrorism Fellowship Program. He's the author of six books, including New Terrorism, Myths and Reality, Violent Extremists, Understanding the Domestic and International Terrorist Threat, and Iraq and the Challenge of Counterinsurgency. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an assessment of the global struggle between democracies under threat and encroaching autocracies and kleptocracies. He can't afford the gasoline Now if a Muslim woman strapped with a bomb on the bus With the seconds running give you the jitters Just imagine an American-based Christian organization Planning the poison water supplies to bring the second coming quicker Senor Senor Can you tell me where we're heading Lincoln County Road or Armageddon Seem like I've been down this way before Is there any truth in that, senor? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is James Cronin, a research professor of history at Boston College and a local affiliate of the Minda de Gunsberg Center for European Studies at Harvard University. He's the author of numerous books and articles, including Global Rules, America and Britain in a Disordered World. His latest book, Just Out, is Fragile Victory, The Making and Unmaking of Liberal Order. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Cronin. Thank you very much. So it's clear, surely, James Cronin, that we no longer have a world divided in an ideological struggle as we had during the Cold War between capitalism and communism. The division now in the world between frail democracies and the encroachment of autocracies, and nothing is more stark than what is happening in Ukraine, where... As you point out in your book, the liberal democratic order that seems so stable in North America and Western Europe has become precarious. And it is precarious, particularly if Putin were to win, that would be a victory against democracy. And the Ukrainians are clearly trying to establish democracy there. And Putin is trying to perpetuate autocracy. And he has friends around the world. And he also has a friend... In, in, who was the head of the Republican Party, I might add, a man who recently blamed the war on Biden and said that Putin didn't want to go to war and that Biden forced him into it. So if the leader of the Republican Party were to become president again, what do you think that would do to this balance, this frail balance between frail democracies and the encroachment of autocracies? Well, it would hardly be good. That's pretty clear. Uh, what I don't know is quite uh, how far uh, Trump's favorability toward Putin would take him or take the country. One has to remember that Trump felt you know, positively toward Putin during his first term as president, hopefully his only term as president, um, 
But during that same period, uh, the United States, the Congress, uh, the institutions of the country um, imposed some serious sanctions uh, against Putin and didn't really allow uh, Trump to, you know, uh, engage the way he wanted to in friendly relations uh, with Putin and favorable actions toward the regime. But still, uh, there's no doubt that Trump would try and uh, it would certainly uh, make it harder to continue the United States' very strong support of Ukraine, which we've seen demonstrated over the past year. But it's under attack, is it not, U.S. support for Ukraine with the new house? Uh, Kevin McCarthy has clearly sold his soul piece by piece to the Freedom Caucus, which now seems to be the tail that wagged the dog. And the Marjorie Taylor Greens of this world want to cut funds for Ukraine, and so does Tucker Carlson, who's an influential voice on Fox News. So we're not out of the woods, are we not, in terms of that? That would be, from Putin's point of view, that would be the best thing that could happen to him, right, is, to, is for the U.S. to pull the plug on funding, and then the Germans and others would follow, and he would win. Yes, that's true. Uh, but again, I, I hear uh, Kevin McCarthy and others, uh, including Tucker Carlson uh, and others on Fox News, uh, making these points, uh, indicating a, a, a willingness to uh, at least contemplate cutting off uh, U.S. support for Ukraine. But my sense is that um, in the country and even in the Republican Party broadly, uh, that willingness to take action favorable to Putin just isn't there. Uh, I think there's a you know clear split in the Republican Party, and you know whether it's Tucker Carlson or more specifically Kevin McCarthy um, playing to the most right-wing sections of the base of the party. Uh, they're a long way from being able to actually affect policy on Ukraine. So James Cronin. There's no polling on this, as far as I can tell, but what do you think the numbers are in terms of that constituency, the far-right constituency, the one that Trump is the head of, the one that McCarthy has had to bow to in order to become Speaker? I mean, is it possible that American fascism could emerge? Well, fascism uh, is pretty strong stuff. Uh, I think... That seems unlikely. Uh, certainly, the you know last election result in uh, 2022 um, showed the limits of Trump's ability to pick candidates, to influence candidates, to win elections. And uh, I don't think that's going to change with the country looking at the strange uh, and uninspiring antics. Of Republicans in Congress, uh, there are some yeah, estimates of how strong, how much support Trump commands within the Republican Party. Uh, I think people estimate that people who are firmly committed to Trump among Republicans are, you know, around 25 or 30 percent of the party. Uh, that's that's not great. That's that's too many people committed to extreme white right wing views, but. Uh, it's it's still um, far from a majority, and it isn't clear that that number is growing. 
But your new book, James Conan, Fragile Victory, The Making and Unmaking of the Liberal Order, shows how the post-war system was established out of a revulsion at what fascism wrought in terms of World War II and, you know, 100 million deaths and destruction, etc. So yes. that's why I bring it up, because it is coming back. It's coming back in, in, in pockets in Western Europe, in AFD, the party in Germany, the new Swedish right-wing party. In France, you have the party. So I, I don't want to be an alarmist, but I, I just wonder what the appeal is, and, and it does appear to be a transnational movement. Yes, I think that's all true. Um, and I think you're right to point out that the hammering out of the liberal world order, which unfortunately was confined to the West and its allies um, because of the Cold War, the hammering out of that order in the 1940s was very much um, a construction built on the understanding of what Nazism, fascism was, what it appealed to, what it had done. And so the, you know, all the sort of principles and the institutions of the post-Second uh, World War order were really very much, as you say, fashioned out of a, a revulsion uh, at what had happened. Uh, but, and, and you know, it would be terrible if we had to think that the future of a of, of liberal order or a peaceful world order rules based uh, order had to depend on us experiencing something like fascism and war and its destruction again uh, one hopes that doesn't happen and uh, that the you know experience with fascism and war fascism leading to war and terrible destruction and the Holocaust. One hopes that's a one-off experience that one learns from. So what is the appeal of these um, populists, authoritarian right-wing populists, we'll call them illiberal populists? Uh, I think one way to think about them uh, is to think of the long history of relative political stability that existed, you know, from, let's say, 1945 up to 1989. And uh, I think what was particularly important there was the strength of the center politically, by which I mean the center left and the center right. And, you know, the kinds of political systems that uh, emerged and prospered in that era uh, Involved usually the, the 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 you know switching back and forth of which of which kind of party was in power, but they were pretty close together. They were bound toward to the center. Now, one of the things that bound them to the center um, was actually the Cold War. The fact that you know right wing parties had to be center right because they wanted to project a progressive image in the battle with the Soviet Union in the Cold War. They also, of course, you know, had been chastened by the flirtation of right-wing parties or the complicity of right-wing parties with uh, fascism during the 30s and 40s. So I think the, the right was attached to the center, uh, whereas the left kind of veered to the center you know, for, for, for votes. Um, but the key holding it together in part was the Cold War. When the Cold War ended, 
right-wing parties and politicians and movements um, were not constrained by this need to present a moderate image. And so you find them flirting again with things like nationalism, racism, anti-Semitism, anti-immigrant sentiment, uh, beginning very much in the 1990s as the Cold War uh, receded from view. I mean, the the classic example in America is, of course, the the strength of Pat Buchanan in the 1990s. Um, So that's one major factor. The uh, that goes with the fact that in the 1980s, uh, center right politics, you know, became neoliberal politics, market fundamentalism, as represented by Thatcher and Reagan. And while those ideas and those leaders enjoyed considerable success in the 1980s, mainly because they offered a solution to the inflation and the stagflation of the 1970s. By the late 1980s, those policies and those leaders um, have less and less appeal. And I think in a a fundamental sense, uh, market fundamentalism or neoliberalism, uh, its appeal gets thinner and thinner over time because it offers people less and less. you know, it translates into politics of us, the politics of austerity, which don't offer much to most people. So the the weakening of the appeal of neoliberalism, per se, and the end of the Cold War, I think tempts, prompts people on the right to engage in, as I said before, you know, politics that are racist and nationalist and anti-immigrant, but they also tempt those same people to what uh, to fight what you know they themselves called Buchanan called the culture wars, and that means focusing on all sorts of sort of extraneous issues which nevertheless can appeal to uh, significant numbers of people. So I think that is a general phenomenon on the on the right politically, um, but of course not all you know conservative parties are adept at moving in that direction. A classic example, in a way, is the British Conservative Party, which, you know, uh, didn't really embrace culture wars uh, and that kind of populism until they were more or less forced to by the rise of Nigel Farage and the UKIP over the Brexit issue. So I think most of what's happened has to do with the reconfiguration of right-wing politics in the aftermath of the Cold War and in the late stage of neoliberal politics. So in the last few minutes then, James Cronin, back to the Ukraine war, which the, the US and NATO position is not being supported in much of the third world in the global south. And what is the explanation for that? Is it the vestige of anti-colonial movements, what explains why the democracies, and obviously we're not a perfect democracy, we've been making it clear that that even the United States is under threat from far-right insurgencies, and we saw that on January the 6th. Israel, which prides itself on being a democracy, uh, is hardly a democracy if you're a Palestinian. So I understand, you know, the people in the third world and, and the global south sort of have a sense of hypocrisy, but I just don't understand how they don't see what a thug and a murderer Putin is and that 
gangster government is no substitute for the rule of law. Well, I think you're quite right. Um, it, it is a, a bit of a mystery. But I think if you add together sort of lingering anti-colonialism, lingering resentment of the West for you know its role in empire and in dominating the world even after empire, uh, after colonies were you know liberated, uh, if you add, start with that and then add into it the fact that um, Russia and China uh, are both making a, a pitch for the allegiance of third world countries uh, by essentially, you know, um, giving them money. China has this huge program, the so-called Belt and Road program of financing development in African countries and other countries in Asia uh, with low interest loans, um, big sums of money, huge contracts to um, build airports and railway systems and just about everything so that third world countries have an interest in uh, a material interest in playing off, you know, what they can get from the West and what they can get from China and what they can get from Russia. So if you put those, those two things together, I think you've got enough incentive to explain their, I would say not support for Russia so much as just indifference or neutrality. Uh, and of course, you know, they're not in Europe and they're not threatened by Russia the same way, say, other people in Europe, particularly in Eastern Europe, uh, are threatened because they know what Russia has in mind for them. Well, James Cronin, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. It's been a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with James Cronin, who's a research professor of history at Boston College and a local affiliate of the Minda de Gunsberg Center for European Studies at Harvard University. He's the author of numerous books and articles, including Global Rules, America and Britain in a Disordered World. And his latest book just out is Fragile Victory, The Making and Unmaking of Liberal Order. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Sing